Welcome to another episode of the Odd Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe, I think at this point we've had a number of people either involved in the cryptocurrency boom or massive fans of it on the podcast, correct? Yeah, we have now, haven't we? I hadn't really like thought about that, but uh, in the last um, several months, it does feel like even with the sort of boom having waned quite a bit over the last year, we have talked to a number of uh, hardcore uh, true believers. Yes. And we've discussed this before, but our timing on this has been absolutely <laughs> terrible because we basically waited until the bubble uh, had burst for us to get a bunch of Bitcoin people on. But, you know, at least we didn't contribute to the bubble. Because I don't think like we did a <laughs> single crypto episode in all of 2017, as far as I know. Mm -hmm. And so at least when everyone was like, you know, losing their heads or going crazy, at least we didn't at least we didn't amplify the hype. This is very true. But I think in the interest of fairness at this point, we need to get a sort of anti-crypto person on. Yes. And in my search for this ultimate anti-crypto person, I think I came upon the most sort of vociferous um, argument against cryptocurrencies and also the underlying blockchain technology that I have ever seen. Wait, are we going to are we talking to Jamie Dimon today? No, it's not Jamie Dimon. Jamie Dimon was not that convincing because, you know, he, he came to that conference, said Bitcoin was a fraud. But we know that JP Morgan, at the same time that it says Bitcoin is a fraud, claims to be experimenting with blockchain technology. Well, so no. No, I mean, there's a, there's, a really interesting, there's a really good point here. And it's something that I've always found frustrating in the debate, which is that there's no shortage of Bitcoin skeptics and Bitcoin critics and mm. people call it a fraud and a Ponzi scheme and a bubble. What there is a shortage of, however, are people who are who call Bitcoin a fraud or they're skeptical of it, who have actually done the research and have the technical chops to understand it and understand what they're talking about. So you get all these people on stage and they say Bitcoin is a scam. It's like, OK, but what mm -hmm. they usually don't have is anything interesting to say after that. And so that is what I'm absolutely uh, what I'm hoping that maybe we can accomplish today. Absolutely. And what you often hear from the crypto proponents is, oh, well, you don't understand the technology or right. you don't understand the technology's p potential. And so it's not worth talking to you. OK, so I'm very pleased to say that we have found not only a tech expert, but someone who is sort of the ultimate anti-crypto person who gave a presentation at the Enigma Usenix conference in California just about a month ago. The title of this conference was Cryptocurrencies and Blockchain Burn it with fire. You can't get stronger than that, can you? So I'm very excited to say that our guest for this episode is Nick Weaver. He is a researcher at the International Computer Science Institute and a lecturer at UC Berkeley. Nick, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for hosting me. Uh, so, Nick, I got to say, cryptocurrencies burn it with fire. You know, you're, you're clearly not mincing your words here. You have strong feelings about the crypto uh, sphere. Yes, and that's because I've actually been able to watch it for uh, three-quarters of a decade now. So what happened when the cryptocurrencies first came out in, in uh, 2010 and 2011 is most people who looked at it with technical understanding went, oh, this is bovine excrement, and walked away. But <laughs> I have a monetization model. I can watch the cryptocurrency space and turn it into both academic papers and 
non-academic papers, and so I've been able to basically mine comedy gold from the field <laughs> for uh, several years now, and that means I've been aware from the beginning from sagas such as 10% of all Bitcoin being invested in a Ponzi scheme run by a guy called Pirate at 40. <laughs> so uh, in your presentation and in your uh, talks and tweeting, you're critical of both uh, sort of public blockchains, which is what we call cryptocurrency, uh, and also uh, corporate blockchains. I'm a little less interested in the corporate side because I feel like there are very few defenders of them anymore. And so you'll find a lot of agreement even among cryptocurrency enthusiasts. When you look at cryptocurrencies, however, and this idea of like Bitcoin as this sort of permissionless, kind of anonymous uh, payment system decentralized, what is, in your view, the sort of fatal flaw that makes it not live up to the, uh, the hype of its advocates? The big fatal flaw is it doesn't actually work as currency. If you can't use it as a competitor to all the other actual digital currency systems we have, like, oh, PayPal, Mpasa, Zelle, Visa, all of these payment systems are vastly more efficient than the cryptocurrencies unless you're interested in criminal activity. So walk us through the technical aspects of why you think Bitcoin doesn't work as a currency or as a payment system. Okay, so let's start with the three things you need to be able to do with a currency. You need to be able to acquire it, you need to be able to hold on to it, and you need to be able to spend it. Now, actually acquiring cryptocurrency is a hard problem because cryptocurrency, the one property it has that the other uh, payment systems don't, is it's designed to be irreversible. There's no go back or undo button. Which means in order to buy cryptocurrency, you have to do one of three things. You either have to bring cash, so the Bitcoin ATMs don't take your ATM card, they take cash. Or you have to be given credit by the seller of the cryptocurrency, so you transfer your money electronically and are given credit, or you have to wait. So you transfer your money your, uh, to the exchange. The exchange then sits on it for several days. Anyone who doesn't follow these three rules when selling you cryptocurrency is liable to be defrauded because the rest of the financial system is all designed with an undo button to mitigate fraud. And so, for example, one of the early Bitcoin exchanges used uh, a PayPal clone that promised no chargebacks, and then there were chargebacks and they went out of business. Likewise, mm -hmm. Steve Wozniak sold $75,000 worth of Bitcoin to somebody who paid with PayPal, only to find out that it was a fraudulent transaction. The PayPal was reversed and he was out the Bitcoin. Fortunately, I think the WAS can afford the loss. <laughs> so they're hard to buy. They're harder to hold on to. So if you store your cryptocurrency on a third-party exchange, you are on the hook if they are hacked. And that has been billions of dollars of notional value lost over the years as the exchanges are hacked. And apparently uh, North Korea is now one of the... Uh, big hackers on this. 
So you store your cryptocurrency on your own computer. Well, you can't do that either because if your computer is hacked, your cryptocurrency gets stolen. And in fact, we used this one time to detect a break-in when the thief stole the uh, monitored Bitcoin from a wallet that had a copy on a graduate student's account. So you use a dedicated device. Say like an iPhone is a really strong device. An iPhone, however, you're dependent on the cryptocurrency software. And that cryptocurrency software may be dependent on open source modules on GitHub that can be bought by somebody else, taken over, and include stealing code. And this happened. So they're really hard to hold on to. And finally, you can't actually spend them because the dirty little secret is the merchants who say they accept cryptocurrency, well, first of all, the volume hasn't increased in five years, but they aren't actually accepting cryptocurrency. Because the cryptocurrency prices bounce up and down, they use a service like BitPay, which allows them to price in dollars, and it immediately converts the cryptocurrency into actual money. Even Overstock, up until a year ago, basically did not hold any cryptocurrency. They just converted it all right away. Um, well, they held a teeny amount. Um, and so in order for the system to balance as somebody buying something with cryptocurrency because of that volatility risk, the, the price bouncing up and down, you want to immediately transfer your dollars into cryptocurrency, then spend it, which means a real-world cryptocurrency transaction costs vastly more than the alternatives when you include those two currency conversion steps, and one of which, hmm. buying the cryptocurrency, is inherently expensive. So the only people who can avoid that expense of buying cryptocurrency is the people who've been holding on to it a long time because they're a believer. Now, if you don't believe in cryptocurrency, there's no point. If you do believe in cryptocurrencies, the one rule of them is never actually spend them because these are designed on a gold standard type model. And as we remember our economic history from the Great Depression, the only thing worse than inflation is deflation. That is the notion that your currency is going to be worth more tomorrow than today. And these cryptocurrencies are supposed to be deflationary, which means if you, say, buy a pizza back in 2011, um, you end up dining on regret when it looks like a massive $10 million, $100 million pile of money in 2017. So if you don't believe in it, they don't work for payments. And if you do believe it, they don't work for payments. All right. So... Uh, everything you say makes a lot of sense in terms of Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrencies not being not making any sense whatsoever for what we would call conventional commerce. And um, obviously, the pro Bitcoin rhetoric has changed a lot over time. But something that strikes me listening to you and watching your presentations and also talking to Bitcoin believers is there is a point of convergence. So they would say, yeah, Bitcoin isn't for buying. Uh, Bitcoin isn't for coffee. 
Uh, Bitcoin is for uh, mostly for holding on to. I would never spend my Bitcoin. The point of convergence, which you say in your own presentation that Tracy referenced, is this idea of, okay, there is one thing that Bitcoin is good for, that is censorship-free transactions. So even with all the costs that you describe, the cost of acquiring, the risk of uh, losing your Bitcoin, which is a calculable cost in theory, and then the volatility cost, that for a certain class of transactions, um, some of them outright crime, some of them gray area, some of them more privacy-related, that cost might still be worth it. Yes. The one thing that cryptocurrencies do that all the other payment systems don't is by having no supposed central authority, we'll get to why that's false, but they're designed to be censorship resistant. There's nobody as a third party who is willing to say, no, you can't do forbidden activity. The problem is, and this is why I've gotten much more sour over the past five years, is I've come to the conclusion that that is actually a bad thing. Bitcoin actually has committed a crime against me. It has made me believe in the need for rigorous enforcement of money laundering laws. And I've got, I'm a Silicon <laughs> Valley quasi-libertarian, and I believe in the jackboot of justice on money laundering. So what has happened with the cryptocurrencies? Well, they get used for drug deals, yawn, but more importantly, they get used for extortion. So give us cryptocurrency or your data gets it. Give us cryptocurrency or we're going to keep sending bomb threats. Um, How long before an airport is blackmailed with give us cryptocurrency or you're going to get drones flying over you? Um it just ends up reaching out and touching people in a very bad way. Then there's the theft, that billions of dollars worth of theft. And then there's the environment of what's left is pure speculation based on somebody else being willing to pay more. But those markets are so blatantly manipulated and fraudulent So I consider every ICO that was open to non-accredited investors, it is securities fraud. And that's just what we have left is just basically um, civil fraud, criminal fraud, and rampant speculation and market manipulation. So I want to uh, just pin down and uh, not move on from something that you said. You know, you say, okay, the only thing that it's really good for things like drug deals and it's uh, given rise to a new model of extortion. It only works because, in theory, the censorship resistance and the decentralization so that no one can say this transaction isn't allowed. But you threw in there and said we were going to get back to it. But even that is a false promise. And I really think this is the sort of central question of, do you think the uh, censorship resistance slash decentralization case for Bitcoin, why is that also not actually uh, live up to the hype? So it lives up to the hype on censorship resistance. It does provide that. But the notion of decentralization, so decentralization, the idea is 
let's make it so that you don't have to trust any individual or small group of entities, but only the system as a whole. Now, the benefits of decentralization, apart from censorship resistance, are never clearly articulated. It's basically an article of belief. But assuming that that is good for something, the result has been dismal. They cost a huge amount to run, but they don't end up being decentralized. So cryptocurrency mining for Bitcoin is controlled by basically four entities. Four entities can conspire together and completely control what transactions get approved or not. Likewise, so there's no actual decentralization. There's just a veneer of decentralization. Likewise, the code developers themselves are central authorities as well. So take Ethereum, for example. Ethereum is all code is law and no central authorities. But when 7% of all Ethereum got invested in basically a self-creating Ponzi scheme that had a bug in it that allowed the money to get stolen, the developers went, oh, you know that whole code is law business? Um, Yeah, that's a lie. (laughs) We're changing the code to undo the theft because it was our money you stole. Yeah, I've wondered about this at various times, especially with the forks that we've seen in, well, notably in in Bitcoin, where we do seem to have the overall direction of Bitcoin being determined by consensus and by users. So like, how, how much of a problem are those forks? Well, they are and they aren't. They are if you actually believe that decentralization is supposed to mean something, because these forks are not some large community thing, but just a few individuals, the the cartels on the mining and or the coders. Um, So if you actually believe that decentralization is important somehow, these forks are problematic. Otherwise, for the rest of us, it's just basically popcorn. It's entertaining to watch the interscene conflicts between various camps in the big block versus small block. It's like big Indian versus little Indian. Um, and so it's entertainment, but it's not anything really fundamental from a systemic viewpoint because they're all just only worth something because somebody else will pay for it. So, well, it's a good example that the notion of limited supply isn't true because you can just create more of these out of the air. But other than that, it's just amusement value. So, Nick, I wanted to go back to something you were saying earlier about the regulatory response. And this is something that I've, I've wondered at, at various times myself, probably on Twitter at some point. But if regulators are sort of missing a trick because they're going to get a bunch of burned investors, either via crypto investments or ICOs. 
why aren't they acting? And why the other thing that I often wonder is if if you think that crypto is going to be a legitimate currency sometime in the future, then surely that would undermine, you know, various regulators and monetary authorities as well. So they should be acting. So like either way, either it's a fraud or either it's going to be successful, you would think there should be some sort of regulatory response. I would have hoped so, but I think what it comes down to is regulators these days are afraid of being claimed to stifle innovation. And the cryptocurrency believers have talked a very good story about how they're being innovative and new, um, even if in reality they're basically speedrunning 500 years of economic failures over and over and over again. But so the result is the regulators have in the past been very hands-off. So like you had all these ICOs and it just, you just look at it and it fails the Howey test, the, the test for is this a security? And what I think has happened is now that things are collapsing, the regulators are finally starting to pay attention. And so... The regulators are reactive. They are not proactive. And so as a consequence, they sat back during the boom, did nothing. And now that it's a bust, they're going to go and probably uh, drop a lot of lawsuits and probably indict some people because now that the tide is rushing out, you're seeing that everyone is naked. Um they're actually doing something. And I think it really is regulators are afraid of regulating new or old wine in new bottles. They think it's new. They don't know what to do yet. And so as a consequence, they just basically did nothing during the, and well, now they get the joys of picking up the pieces. (laughs) I want to go back to where you say this whole cryptocurrency uh, phase has sort of uh, damaged your natural libertarian instincts because now you have this appreciation for this money laundering uh, regulation. I'm, I'm like struck on this point that in a sense, your your view on cryptocurrencies is not all that different from a lot of uh, believers, which is that it really comes down to censorship resistance. You point out that that's mostly used for drug dealers and all kinds of things that are awful. They would say, yes, that is a byproduct of what happens when you have freedom and that, you know, there are good things that can come out of censorship resistance, that there are people in areas of the world or people in lines of work for whatever reason they don't want their bank to know, or maybe their bank cracks down on their line of work if they're, uh, say, a sex worker or something like that. And they would say, that, yes, there's money laundering and crime, but that is the price that you pay for also having this freedom. And they would also say say that um, this debate has happened before in uh, cryptography and the sort of export of, uh, you know, strong cryptography where people say, oh, if cryptography exists, then that's going to be good uh, only for terrorists. But that also is what enabled the web to work. So how much is this really like a technical fight versus essentially a values fight? I think at this point, it is a values fight. And I really don't like that uh, cryptography analogy, because cryptography, we've always seen good uses for it right from the start. 
But with the cryptocurrencies, the problem is, is people can't point to legit payment systems. So what has censorship resistance allowed you to do that, um, that the others haven't? Well, if you need censorship resistance, you always still have cash. It's just that cash has both the need for physical proximity and significant mass. So scaling cash, moving a thousand bucks is easy, moving a million bucks is hard. So right. cryptocurrencies want to um, enable that moving large quantities. And the other thing is, is I've just seen the damage that is done. So people point to cryptocurrency being used in two good situations to get around censorship. The first was payments to WikiLeaks. So WikiLeaks was cut off from the banking system back around when Assange first fled to the embassy to avoid the uh, sex assault charges. So when that happened, um, you could use cryptocurrency if you wanted to support WikiLeaks. And that's all fine and good. But WikiLeaks decided that it's actually better just to arrange with a U.S. nonprofit to act as an intermediary and basically uh, launder contributions. And then we had Backpage. So Backpage was a Craigslist clone that did a lot of support for sex workers. And I actually think, yeah, that probably was good overall, or at least been less damaging than the alternatives, but they were cut off from the banking system. And so to pay with them, you'd either have to pay with cryptocurrency or you send them uh, a check in the mail. Um, and I suspect most of their payments became checks in the mail. Now, the problem is, is let's face it, Backpage turned out to be a criminal conspiracy. And so we're left with very few non-criminal usages because it is so expensive. So it's actually a lot more expensive than the other anonymous electronic payments you want. So if you want to buy your porn anonymously, you go into Target, pay $104 for a Visa gift card, and now you can use that Visa gift card to buy your porn. So the cost of privacy on electronic transactions is actually a lot less than the cryptocurrencies offer because you you have this huge problem of you can't hold on to the cryptocurrencies. You can hold on to a Visa gift card. Never say odd lots doesn't bring us uh, <laughs> useful day-to-day -day information and life tips. Um, Nick, on a serious note, if this is all about differences in values or value systems – and given that cryptocurrency supporters seem to be so invested in the belief system around crypto and everything that comes with it, what ultimately is going to be the thing that destroys cryptocurrencies, mm. as you put it in your presentation, that ends up burning them with fire in some way? There's two things that can really burn the system with fire. The first is the federal government um, getting their act together and going after this cryptocurrency called Tether. So 
Tether is effectively a digital banknote. It's supposedly tied one-to-one with the dollar, but it's not. It's a, basically, it's reinventing 18th century banking combined with Liberty Reserve, which was a criminal enterprise the Fed shut down a few years back. And so it's a rife target for disruption. But if the uh, tether is removed, that actually destroys almost the entire Bitcoin exchange ecology. So 80 to 90% of the cryptocurrency volume on the exchanges are on exchanges that are already cut off from the banking system because they're viewed by the banks as basically two high-risk fraudulent enterprises with a huge amount of wash trading and painting the tape and such blatant market manipulation that the uh, price graphs look like Bart Simpson's haircut. Um, So if you remove Tether, basically you remove the entire exchange ecology except for a few. And so that alone would have a huge negative impact. And Tether is such blatantly a crime under money laundering laws that it's surprising they haven't been prosecuted yet. So that's one. Number two is all these proof-of-work coins. So the idea behind proof-of-work, which is what protects Bitcoin, Ethereum, and most of the other major cryptocurrencies, is basically better described as burning money. So the system burns X thousands of dollars an hour under the assumption that an attacker to attack the system would have to burn more than that. The problem is, is in order to defend the system, you have to be burning X dollars an hour continuously, but an attacker might only have to burn X dollars for a limited period of time, an hour or two. And so what has happened is the Cryptocurrency systems that only cost $5,000 an hour to run, the so-called altcoins, um, there's less polite terms for them as well, those have actually become regularly attacked by people who burn $6,000 for an hour and use it to conduct fraudulent transactions targeting uh, cryptocurrency exchanges. So... If you're inefficient, or if you're efficient, you're vulnerable. But if you're burning Bitcoin level of money, uh, thousands of dollars, uh, or so, like Bitcoin is, what, about $5 million a day right now? Um, Hmm. If you're burning $5 million a day, yes, you are secure against an attacker, but you are so dependent on the price that you need $5 million a day of new money coming in just to keep the lights on. So if the cryptocurrency drops in price, it actually creates a death spiral situation where you've got a lot of mining equipment that will get turned off because it's not profitable to protect the network. But it may be profitable to turn on for an hour or two to attack the network. And so as long as the price stays high and growing, the system is secure. But in order for that to happen, they keep needing $5 million a day plus of new suckers coming in wanting to buy the cryptocurrency. And that's net 
inflow of new money. And if that ever stops, the price starts to drop, and then we get into these death spiral situations where they lose all their security. All right. Well, uh, Nick Weaver, it was great having you on. Thanks so much for walking us through all the the tech arguments underlying the anti-crypto case. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Joe, I thought that conversation was absolutely fantastic. Really great to get an actual, you know, computer scientist view of cryptocurrencies and how blockchain technology is working, but also to have someone sort of put it in that comical language is is just fantastic. Yeah, I agree. And I do think it was interesting to me, though, that like at its core, there is this area of overlap that in a sense... The blockchain or the Bitcoin blockchain kind of does what it's supposed to do. Like it works. It's just that it works in a very narrow case, and you have to make the case that that narrow uh, that narrow use case actually has some benefit and is worth all the costs, which you don't really hear. Even most of the sort of like crypto, Bitcoin, blockchain enthusiasts articulating what that point is. So I find it very helpful that I feel like. We're sort of getting to the nub of the issue, which is that is this sort of narrow use case actually a benefit, uh, a net societal benefit or not, or a project worth pursuing? Well, I think that's a good way to frame it. And I think there's probably an obvious reason why crypto proponents don't talk about the narrow base case, which is essentially criminality and money laundering and blackmail. And I say that as someone who uh, recently got a, a, a blackmail Uh, email on the Bloomberg system requesting $10,000 worth of Bitcoin, which they helpfully translated, I think it was to 2.5 or 2.6 Bitcoin, immediately deposited into their wallet. Um, So that does definitely happen. No, I didn't. (laughs) Apparently, there's a pending CIA investigation against me. So if I disappear tomorrow, you know why. Okay. But I will say, I, I actually, I disagree on the point that it does have and especially good use for criminal activities. I still think at its heart, the technology is unwieldy and inefficient for reasons of either energy consumption or the notion that the blockchain can be edited. It's not immutable. And you're trying to create trust amongst entities that don't trust each other anyway. And if they did trust each other, they would come up with some other sort of contract system. Well, the point that uh, Nicholas made at the end that there is, you know, there are frailties. I mean, people would there's debate about this, but this death spiral, like ultimately, if there a lot of the value currently in cryptocurrencies is premised on the idea that they have, oh, all kinds of oh, mach- Internet of Things and machine to machine transactions, mm. all this stuff. If a lot of the value are still people believing in that, then it's easy to imagine a big drop in value from here, then the death spiral, and then the whole thing breaks up. And if the transactions were to ever get unwound or edited in some way in an attack, then that really would strike to the heart of the entire, oh, this is immutable and this is censorship resistant. So it feels like even on the core use, the jury is still out about whether that will work. Yeah. And on the plus side, I guess, as the price of Bitcoin dips lower, we will get to see whether or not the death spiral actually happened. So that's something to look forward to. 
This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our guest today, uh, Nicholas Weaver. He is at NC Weaver. And don't forget to follow our producer, although he was out this week. He's at T, as well as the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening. Thank you.